I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. I'm afraid this is about the least interesting of the ideas Leanne has had for this event, which have included a candlelit vigil, um, a seance, um, and everyone should tell their own ghost story. Um, so we might end up at that. Um, but um, I just wanted to kind of introduce this book slightly. I mean, as probably most of you know, Leanne does write the most kind of original books with a kind of mix of text and um, image. Um, and I think this is her most kind of crazy and far out and, and wonderful book so far. Possibly the most related book, I think, is Toys Talking, your children's book, but um, we can talk about that later. And what I wanted to do is just sort of what we thought, partly because this is all about, I think, kind of the relationship of words and images. Um, we wanted to actually start by doing a slightly crazy experiment where we'll read one of the stories um, with no images whatsoever. Um, and this is the, so for Leanne, if you introduce it, and then we'll... Um, See, you pronounce this word differently than I do. You, you, I'm sure you pronounce it correctly. I pronounce uh -huh. it Eidolon, but you that's pronounce fine. it Eidolon. If, that's fine. Let's <laughs> <laughs> call the whole thing off. <laughs> okay. Um, so Adam is going to read, I suppose there's sort of stage directions. This story is illustrated by the final scene in Death in Venice, where in the movie, not in the novel, uh, the photographic version of Death in Venice, where... Tadzio sort of wades out into the water and does this sort of little turn and then points. So Adam will read the Visconti Badalucco uh, version of that okay. death in Venice. Okay. 62, beach, Hotel des Bains, exterior. Tadzio has waded idly through the water and reached the sandbar. To Ashenbach's eyes, the boy seems an improbable apparition against a foggy background without end. As she's carried to the car after a Christmas party, she nests her head in her father's neck. The purple sky is like her fingers and the wind is cold and smells old. Her father sets her on the back seat, fastens her seatbelt. She's small, smells like sweet hair and pee, turds like little birds collect in her pull-up. Her lead levels are normal, her sneeze like a wet tissue dropped on the floor. Ashenbach rests his head against the chair back, his arms relaxed at his sides his head turned to watch the movements of the figure out there. The car follows the cloverleaf onto a highway. The beam of a streetlight touches the hood and guides the vehicle along until the next beam picks it up. She falls asleep. Horns on Fifth Avenue. She's 43 and has opened the kitchen window so the paint fumes won't linger with the fettuccine, the strawberries, the water lemon. As though struck by a sudden recollection or by an impulse, Tadzio turns from the waist up in an exquisite movement. One hand resting on his hip, he looks over his shoulder at the shore. 
Her breath is eggy in the back seat. She stirs and looks at a defrosting windshield in Bavaria. Blooms of clarity spread across the glass. Thirteen years ago, she saw La Boheme. He picked her up in a town car on Jane Street. She wore a black corduroy suit and a pink scarf. They looked at the program, and he asked her who the woman in the Lancome ad was. Musetta is with Elsindoro. Mimi dies. Tadzio looks long at the beach where Aschenbach sits. She goes again to La Boheme, this time with Rodolfo. They sit in the parterre. They both have a cold. She is who she was becoming. Happy from the Tatinger, she sees a shimmer of who she was the last time Mimi died. They used to live in the building that Bob Dylan walks in front of on a snowy day on the record sleeve for the freewheeling Bob Dylan. It's the one on the right directly across the street from the blue VW camper van. Dylan and his girlfriend, Susie Rotolo, snuggle past a white Chevy parked in front of what is now a butcher's. Aschenbach lifts his head as though in answer to Tadzio's gaze. She'd step outside to see a couple posing for that picture, another friend shooting the tableau vivant, or sometimes it would just be one person who would have propped a camera or phone against a Pepsi can or something set to self-timer while they strolled down the middle of the street toward it. This happened at least once a week. The sound of poets dying in gutters. The song Bob Dylan's Dream is based on the folk ballad Lady Franklin's Lament, which is about a tragic Victorian expedition to the Arctic in 1845 involving two ships, the Erebus and the Terror. In 1829, Edgar Allan Poe wrote these verses in his poem, Dreamland. Where an Eidolon named Night on a black throne reigns upright, I've reached these lands but newly from an ultimate dim Thule. The beam of a streetlight touches the hood and guides the car along until the next beam picks it up. There are three mailboxes on the sidewalk in front of the post office. It's closed and a couple are kissing against the first mailbox. They're kissing on the street where a different couple ran through the rain, covered by an extra large garbage bag, late for a dinner inside a museum. <clears throat> Aschenbach starts to bow his head and it falls heavily on his chest. His eyes are troubled, but his face assumes a restful expression, absorbed as though he is sleeping soundly. Later, the woman was angry when the man talked too long to another woman. So she began talking to a different man, and they ordered drinks. When he found her talking to the different man, the first man took the glass from her hand and drank from it. The other woman had once waited for the man, waited and wished, then had given up. He wished too, now he waits. Down there on the sandbar, divided by an expanse of water from the shore, it seems as though the boy smiles, and raising his hand from his hip, indicates a distant place on the horizon. There's a couple kissing against the first of three mailboxes in front of the post office. It's getting dark and a woman waits on the post office steps for a car to arrive to take her and her daughter home. It's on the same street where a couple once ran through the rain late for dinner. She loved him, loved him, loved him, loved him. At the dinner, the man ran into a woman by whom he was once loved, but whom he didn't love. He wanted to love her, but now he loves the woman with whom he ran through the rain. Now he waits for her and her daughter. Now the other woman has a son. It's getting dark, and a woman waits on the post office steps for a car to arrive to take her and her daughter home. Despite her friends buying her an expensive fur muff and shoving her hands into it, Mimi dies. Did it kind of work? What did you see in your head? 
know if it worked or not. <laughs> Thanks for enduring our experiment. Because um, I, I, I can't quite show this. Each page of that story has a kind of frame, like a still. Like a still of the. Of the, um, the boy, like a silhouette. It's like that phrase in cartoons, the silhouette of passage, you know, where like a character goes through a wall and then they leave their silhouette. Um, <laughs> and, um, but I guess my kind of question first here is like, you know, these are called ghost stories. So who are the ghosts in that story? Um, the ghosts are, oh gosh, it's, it's sort of anything that repeats. I mean, the book is so much about photography too, so it's about how we can look at a picture a million times. It's about the after image. It's about um, our need to look. And so I think in that story, it's, it's attending two versions of La Boheme. It's um, the little girl in the back seat and the 43-year-old woman. It's, um, it's the different Mimis, and it's these repetitions romantically of what happens when, timing, when time is imperfect, essentially, mm -hmm. as time is. So all of the characters are, are ghosts. And I loved how in Death in Venice, and this is... This is why I used that scene on the beach and in the novel. Well, Thomas Mann in the novel actually writes, there is an old, there's, a, there's a, a, a view camera on the beach, which is presumably for, you know, the, the tourists. And Visconti puts a view camera on the beach in the last scene, too. And so I'm always thinking, sort of, what is that camera seeing? And in this case, it was, it was sort of this, this frame. That movement. Um, and then why, like, I know the watercolor is one of the kind of media you really like using. Mm -hmm. Why didn't you do it the other way around, as it were? Put the pictures in. Yeah. I did it, and it was in the layout for the longest time. And then I thought, I love painting from photographs. So I thought, what would it look like if I abstracted at one level and made it yeah. what is in our head and in our memory as a slightly, now, slightly more precious object, which is a painting, right? Yeah. Um, and so I wanted to both abstract it, abstract a photographic image into, um, into painting, which is something that I remember seeing Gerhard Richter do really early on and just going like, okay, the, the world has changed. This is really yeah. interesting. So I love painting from photographs, so that was a... And I didn't want to uh, pay for copyright. <laughs> <laughs> so... <laughs> But it's kind of interesting because it's like what you're saying about this idea of the repetition because it also reminded me almost of an after image. You know, it looks like kind of when there's a flash. Yeah. I'm interested what you say about it because like to me, like one of the things that I found fascinating about this was that obviously normally what we're used to with the idea of the ghost is the idea of the supernatural, of the kind of metaphysical. And although there are kind of hints of those kind of stories, actually like one of the kind of main emotions I kind of found going through this is actually like there's a huge kind of sadness almost in this book to do with very ordinary human like flaws and failures um, and then attempts to put things back together that are broken mm -hmm. um, that in many senses there's no supernatural going on at all in most of these stories yeah i mean i'm drawn i love henry james's ghost stories yeah and i think in almost all of them but turn of the screw there's very little supernatural going on and i like that he kind of said these are the ghostly tales of our time and yeah. i just wanted to go what are the ghostly tales of our time? And I think they all involve photography. And gosh, you just said something that, that struck me. Um, the sadness, like the, our idea of memory is, is inflected by, by photos. There's something about metaphysical, what was it? Anyway, I'm losing it. But. 
Well, it's like, yeah. it was reminding me of that kind of Freud essay on the uncanny as well, you know, that again, that's all about repetition, compulsion, and kind of repetitions that maybe you don't notice. And the uncanny, I think, seems to be one place where these two ideas come together, where it's both something that could be seen as yeah. supernatural, yeah. but has, like, because the interesting, in the Henry James stories, what I find interesting is that they often have a kind of rational explanation. Mm-hmm. There's often a, someone to whom the story is being told who comes up with the non-scary kind of version of the event. So that, like, the skeptic and, or the, yeah. yeah. And I kind of feel here, there's almost something being done kind of where actually like emotions that we're being used to kind of um, see treated in short stories in an ordinary way of like everyday short stories here become quite uncanny. And I guess one question is, is do you think it's partly because of your use of constantly text and image together? Mm-hmm. I also it, think I'm using very deliberately text and image together, but I'm using them in design conventions we all know how to read in a very banal way. We're like, oh, a list of illustrations. I know how to read that. But yeah. if it's being used, but then you don't see the illustrations, then it, it because something's missing and we're filling it in, and we have a, a sense of uncertainty about what we're filling it in with, and yet we are still doing it. Mm. Um, I think that that can contribute to the uncanny. I think, I think yeah. it's, it's also to do with like this art juxtaposition. You know, like I started making a list of kind of <laughs> all the different um, structures for each story, so that you might get descriptions of a shark and mm. notes from a cruise menu, mm-hmm. um, and another story is floor plans with sort of notes on a child or. Um, you know, like the one we just read, like kind of in one sense, there's no yeah. relationship between the last frames of Death in Venice and this story of a kind of Manhattan love affair or like, and it did seem related. Like I was kind of wondering what your tradition is in what to me, they seem very much coming out of a kind of surrealist art form of. I see what you mean. Yeah. But maybe that's completely wrong. No, I think, well, I like. Well, I like multi-channel. I mean, I'll sort of yeah. go, okay, I'm going to give you a picture, a caption of the picture that is a literal caption and something that is happening at the same time. And I use this example a lot where I talk about the Bloomberg monitor, where there's about four different pieces of information. That's easy. Like, we know how to read that. And I want to do that with, we know how to read that, numbers, words, news, temperature, <laughs> whatever, at the same time. It's funny. It, it could also be paired with anything, and that plays into my idea of time, again, being layered. Mm. This going on at the same time that this is going on, which is a lot of, you know, the traditional ghost stories. There's something that happened in this room, and we're getting, an, you know, an after image or an after effect of it, and ley lines and sort of waves. And so I wanted there to be a sense of something else going on, um, kind of always in, in these stories or... You know, with the floor plans, there's a piece where I um, take floor plans, but I, I almost there's like this Winchester house in in um, the states where this woman sort of wanted to outrun ghosts, so she built rooms that had no staircases into brick walls and rooms that had no exits and all this. So I sort of took these regular floor plans to sort of suburbs, and just in Photoshop was like copy, click, whatever, and just put them as though they were in the mind of someone demented. And my grandmother was going mental at the time, and my mother kept notes on what she would say and do, and I wanted to understand. Okay. We put fen- they, they put fences up in my parents' house so she wouldn't hurt herself, and there was all this stuff. So again, there's a sense of what we know how to read, which is a floor plan, but in fact, it being an impossible floor plan, 
and then um, observing, observing it through, you know, my mother's notes. I'm not answering your question at all, but those notes could exist without those floor plans, or those floor plans could exist as little illustrations um, that you'd have to look at closely. But um, yeah, but it's something about the, what they produce together is a much more interesting toy for thinking I hope than so. um, oh, definitely. They kind of because um, I'm interested, like she, like our mutual friend Sheila. Like I'm just noticing in her blurb for this, Sheila Hetty kind of describes kind of a world of images and captions, and I was kind of thinking about this because for some reason, like. I know what she means, but it seems to me that caption doesn't capture what you're doing here, because a caption to me is something so much smaller. Um, and I think one thing that's fascinating here is it's almost as if you've kind of blown up the idea of a caption, that we're used to an idea that a mm -hmm. caption might fix an image mm -hmm. um, and be a short sort of segment of text that is somehow going to then, if every image could have kind of multiple interpretations, the caption is there to kind of prevent that. But what, yeah, but and what here, I try to like, do is actually is to kind of widen it out. Widen it out, um, yeah. I'm kind of interested in what the kind of other models for you of a book like this are. Like, I was trying to kind of think to myself, what does this remind me of? And I couldn't, like, I was kind of coming up with weird, like, things like Andre Brisson's novel, Nadia, which also has photos, or, um, like, Rob Grier's, like, kind of cine roman of his, of kind of last year at Marienbad, which is kind of another ghostly yeah. kind of story. But, like, I didn't know if those were completely off and whether you'd actually go with something much more design, like, whether actually these like well it a lot of it comes from design and a lot of it comes from wanting to like as you know the you know novel in the form of the auction catalog it was sort of saying okay how can i how can i you know can i sustain a story through an auction catalog in this case what i saw was a copy of um white mischief on holiday which is a sh crappy little copy with you know paperback pulpy paper very grainy images and it has two photo signatures. I call them photo signatures, but the plates section. Yeah. And I was looking at, there's a little nod to it in the book, but I was looking at um, a caption that said, um, boy, whatever's body in the, in the um, footwell of the Buick. And I was looking at the picture for about five minutes trying to see the body, but because of the reproduction and the pulpiness of the paper and the age of this paperback, there was no, I couldn't see a thing, but, and I yeah. just, loved that I was wrapped like I was just like where's the body like and um <laughs> and I thought oh I want a 350 page book that's just the foot and just can I sustain one story over 350 pages using the convention that we all have of like oh it's telling me what's there I'm gonna believe it yeah. and um and uh, like focus on it and um so I tried it and um, I think I actually showed Luke some of that. <laughs> I didn't think it was working because it's sort of like by the 10th page, you're like, I get it. <laughs> like, I get what you're trying to do, even though I think it still could work. But then I, I wanted to break it up into the conventions of design and book publishing that we all recognize, like those photo signatures, like list of illustrations, like um, samples of wallpaper with the name of them underneath, all yeah. of these all of these things that we're used to, like a grid now because of Instagram yeah. and eBay, um, all of these things we're used to, but also with language, the tone of the caption, you know, with the Greenland shark, with this um, National Geographic tone, this tone that's supposed to inspire trust, or a national, uh, a national trust, I just realized national trust, a national trust tone when it came to real estate and houses and architecture, um, playing with our um, sense of 
trust when it comes to how we listen to and how that language works. I'm, again, I'm, I'm sort of losing the, the, the thread a little bit, but yeah, I think when what I want a reader to see when they come to these is very, very familiar ways of reading, but then go, okay, what am I, like what, what mm. is coming off the page that maybe I haven't thought about before? Yeah. Um, because um, I think then, from a kind of, as it were, almost from the literary point, it's like kind of the other way around. One of the things I found so fascinating about this book is kind of almost what it then tells you about the economy that a story can be capable of, that actually there can be like huge submerged narrative or narrative potential in almost just a series of photos if they have the right kind of caption. That these are, that, you know, these are, this is a book of short stories. And one of the things I think that's kind of interesting is just the kind of amount of latent kind of story mm. that you can find. I'm just trying to think, like, it's almost as if there well, are latent's multiple... a good word because, again, photography. Yeah. The idea that everything was a latent image before photography was invented. It's not like images weren't latent before silver nitrate and yeah. bitumen of Judea and now the cloud or yeah. digital. I don't know. There's something about the word latency that... Yeah. Yeah. Because it's almost, I feel like Love. one of the stories that's almost like an allegory of like the whole book is, um, I can't remember what the title is now, but it's where the, someone is taking a video and they think they see like in the video, suddenly yeah. there is a person crosses the frame. And it seems like I thought that so spoke to so much of what actually we've used photography for, which is, so, you know, like going back to kind of ectoplasm and kind of the earliest photography of kind of seances, yeah. where almost like a flaw in the medium and then obviously the word medium is kind of like, but a flaw in this kind of texture is then read as a hidden presence that otherwise we were unaware of. Yeah, like, like a, light, a light leak, I think, is the camera is that the, term. Yeah, it's interesting how but much you will look is, for something. Yeah, exactly. If you're told it's there, <laughs> you are kind of scanning these incredibly smudged photos. I know, as a piece of sort of production and design, it's, it's deliberately kind of unsophisticated. So. Yeah, because it was interesting actually from reading the get like, I guess one like when you're so used to reading galleries, and so I was kind of thinking, oh, this is kind of crappy, <laughs> kind of. But obviously, <laughs> and then in when the, you got the real, and then I was like, oh, <laughs> like, but um, and then realized I'd be sort of misreading it because like I'd been expecting, as it were, suddenly bigger production value or something, mm -hmm. or you know, sharper definition. Especially because I think we're so used to this idea that now all images should be in kind of, and we can produce you know, that at home, yeah. Yeah, and that kind of just that interesting thing of you realizing that actually everyone can look the same almost in a bad photo, like it becomes impossible. Yeah. And I think quite, well, actually kind of, because although there's a huge amount of sadness, like there's a lot of, I think kind of comedy in this. And especially like there's one like kind of very involved story of kind of the various people who've lived in a house and they're kind of the exes, the kind of inter and, and you start thinking like, I could believe that any of these people, if you just say this is Betty or you know, like, it's interesting how much we are prepared to believe a caption. I know. Um, yeah. And how much, by definition, a, cap a caption describes a photograph, not necessarily a painting or illustration. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's a, it's a strange little marriage that they have that we're both being, we're being deceived by both. Mm -hmm. um, all the time. I'm a little down on photography right now. <laughs> it's Why? a lie. <laughs> I don't know. I just, I want to know what it was like to not have photography in the world. I mean, I, I publish photography books. It's not like I'm anti-photography, but I'm so curious as to what it's doing to our senses evolution or evolutionarily. 
like. What do you think it is doing? It's maybe making our sense of smell weaker or something. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's what I think it's doing. Okay. So like walk around with a blindfold on and your sense of smell. And your sense of know. smell is kind of fun. But something, it's got it, like our thumbs are getting bigger and our stuff is happening. And I think photography is definitely doing something um, to our sense of trust and to our sense of, of ghosts and to our sense of what we expect, what we're violated by. You know, we're violated by pictures. We're, yeah. um, you know, now pictures can be proof instead of presence, a signature, a handshake. Like, I don't know. And do you um, think it's changing our relationship to language as well? Like, I'm trying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. I mean, we don't have an alphabet for. We all know what a latte shot looks like now. Like, I use this example, I don't even know why, because it's so stupid. When you shoot your latte down like that, and we all, like, if we see the latte, we kind of understand who took that picture, how much they make, what is on the table next to them. Like, it's so, you know, it's it's Warburg. Like, it did, can we talk about Warburg a little bit? Let's do it. Maybe Warburg, you know, he essentially says when you look at a picture, you have to understand why that picture exists. And that is the reading of a photo. And, you know, we don't have an alphabet for that exactly, but Warburg started one. Um, A.B. Warburg was this uh, cultural theorist who essentially said the transmission of ideas um, happens through images and iconography more than it happens through language and words. And um, I think his ideas have come to pass. And so when you say, will it change language, I think yes. Yeah. Like, definitely. Well, I don't know, because like, what I think is interesting here is it almost made me think the cliche almost is that now we're in this era of pure spectacle and left. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Well, that the image is paramount. And then one of the things that I found interesting about this was thinking, oh, but all the images we see are commented images, actually. That, like, yeah. Instagram is a kind of... Of course, it is all about the image, but it's also all about the comments underneath. And you've yeah. got a lovely little kind of parody of like yeah. Instagram and kind of. But um, now, anyone under twelve doesn't caption their images, but they'll comment. So it's a, so there's a, like there's yeah. also just this. But it's still language. It's just yeah. so yeah, the exactly. image is never allowed to be on its own as a pure image. The comment you mean with yeah. the comments now? Yeah, it'll um, get there. You think so? I don't know. There's this. So there's a there's a story in the book. I was here last summer. And I was listening to Gareth Evans and Jeff Dyer talk here, and they were talking about Winogrand, if I'm not mistaken. Was anyone 
And what they discovered after Winogrand's death was um, a huge amount of film that he took as a practice he took and never intended to develop. And so there's Winogrand's, was it Winogrand? I'm sure it was Winogrand. There's Winogrand's images there, and he meant them to stay latent. And this was so exciting to me as a practice. He's sort of like, that's how I see, almost like that's how I I breathe, I am this artist, but I don't need the photograph to prove it. That's the, the one of the last stories in the book. There's sort of this, the latency of the latent image, the kind of what's there in the unexposed film is, I think, what, what I'm really interested in now, or how it's still there and is always yeah. there. I want to look there. I, one of the things I want to I just go back almost to the beginning of the book is the title. Sure. Like, there's a series of puns running through this of guests and geists and... Yeah. Ghosts and um, uh, and it made me think of like I kept thinking you were going to bring up the Duchamp joke, you know, of um, a guest plus a host equals a ghost. Well, um, they're both. Yeah, it is. And the like, same and word. it's kind it's of the, um, yeah. host comes and, from guest. Yeah. yeah, and I kind of wanted you to just like, it's one of those kind of titles where with it sub, you know, kind of the pun. It seems so strong that I kind of feel like did this whole, you know, almost that the project kind of gets determined almost by the title. Kind of where in this kind of process did the title did the come title, to you? Okay, it came very late. Um, first, this whole thing was called Kent House, because okay, so, it was going to be focused on architecture and houses. And, okay. and then it was called The Ghost Book or something. And then I, and this is sort of a ghost story. I have a friend who died in 2007. And he was a writer, an incredibly good, sort of an experimental writer. And he loved Sebald, but I was reading Sebald about three or four years ago for a course that I teach, and I recently re-found the book where I was reading it and made notes, and I saw this page, and I'd underlined this section um, where he talks about Austerlitz's language becoming a metaphysic, or something like that. And then I'd written at the top, are the places I once was ghosts, Adam, what did Adam write in my parents' guest book? Adam poem, guest book. And it turns out in 1995, when he was 25, he visited my parents' house, and my parents have a guest room, and in the guest room there's this silly little guest book that nobody signs, covered in flowers. And Adam had written in his spidery handwriting, B.P. Spectres. There's a Canadian poet called B.P. Nichols died when he was 43, actually. And Adam wrote, a geist, a gust, a ghost, a ghast, I guess, a guest. November 1995, Bert Lahr. He signed it Bert Lahr. Because <laughs> he was, he loved Bert Lahr, he loved Beckett. Bert Lahr was Beckett's kind of um, extension of his, you know, his, his, he was his actor in the States, not right. in England, but in the States. Bert Lahr played the Cowardly Lion, but he also did Beckett's plays. Um, and so, I found that, and then I thought, oh, that's the title of my book. Okay, so blah, blah, blah. Um, that didn't go over <laughs> too well. And actually, Sheila was like, make it four. Make it a geist, a gust, a ghost, I guess. Or make it, and then I just narrowed it, narrowed it. And then I thought, oh, well, where I found it is the title. I found it in my parents' weird, flowery guest book. Yeah. That is enough of a... And then um, it was sort of, is it stories? Is it ghost stories? And then... Uh, Becky Salatan, my um, American editor, said, uh, well, we can put ghost stories on the cover. And I sort of 
rallied against that, and then she said, well, what if we deboss it? <laughs> so I was like, okay, <laughs> fine. <laughs> so, ghost story, yeah. Um, but can you talk a bit more about guests? Guests, yes. Okay, well, to talk about guests, like we all know what it feels like to be a guest. It is not ourselves. Yeah. It's not ourselves. To be a host, it's also not ourselves, but possibly more ourselves. I mean, you're either one or the other. You're either a better, go uh, better, guest, <laughs> better guest or a better host. And they are both the same word. I'm a horrible guest. I'm, I'm almost too good at guests. I'm nervous and I want to do the dishes and I just, you can't keep me out of the kitchen. And like, I think I make my hosts really nervous and that version of myself, I really wanted to think about. Also the idea of these, these moments and occasions when you do invite guests, weddings, funerals, birthdays, um, parties, again, are these theaters and stuff gets played out and you're not yourself and Often photographs are taken, and so I really, I'm really interested in, in the guest. It's also just the idea of parasitic, and there's a story in the book um, about the Greenland shark, which is this horrible, amazing animal that lives for 400 years, goes slowly blind because parasites attach themselves to their eyeballs, and nobody knows um, evolution or bio biologically why this happens. So they glow blind and they're just getting bigger and bigger and running into carcasses of snow bears and eating them and then eating ships and <laughs> just like the Inuit and whalers have always sort of killed them but then half of them will swim away like they're really kind of monstrous and I pair that with with the idea of service and wealth and kind of how how people order people around mm. when there is this kind of uh, when you're a guest, but you're also ordering your host around um, situation, and also the idea that that wealth does sort of often sort of accumulate and makes you go blind a little, <laughs> in some cases. Okay, the parasite over your over these eyes, I felt, was a great metaphor for for the sort of blindness that can happen when you have a lot of money. Yeah, there's another kind of political story I felt in um, the iceberg and the sort of hotel restaurant notes yeah. which seem well they were similarly guests on the, it was about the yeah. Titanic and all those guests on the Titanic just like dying <laughs> like it's, it's, I mean it's just the one of the best and worst stories of our like of the world and that the cover is the George Reams was a passenger on the Titanic because he was a man he couldn't get on a lifeboat so he jumped at the end he just jumped and swam away from the ship and managed to get on a collapsible and stand in this ice water for all night and he was uh, dragged aboard the Carpathia and survived. At the inquest, um, uh, he was asked by a group of lawyers because he said, well, I was on the ship, the, the, this white thing passed by my window and then I, in the morning I could, there was this ice field and the, there was a, a really big iceberg there. So, and he said, I, you know, I can't remember if he said, I think that was the one, but he was like the biggest one. There was a really big one. And so the lawyer said, well, can you draw it? And so he drew it on a piece of lined paper, and um, it looked like that. And it, to me, it just looks sort of like a child's drawing of a chair with a sheet over it, which <laughs> relates to sort of this M.R. James story yeah. in the book. And, um, but this is the most reliable image we have of the iceberg that sank the Titanic. There were a bunch of people on the Carpathia that morning that had cameras, and they were like, that must be it. That must, so there's all these images out there, photographs of yeah. the iceberg that sank the Titanic, but this is 
in his memory, this is it. Like, yeah. It's what we got. So I love that that was an artifact and is an artifact in public domain now. I like it because also it kind of goes back to the um, your Aschenbach watercolors because it's another outline. It's like yeah. another afterimage, yeah. which I feel like kind of um, an abstraction. I'm being, of... I'm being told that we're talking too much okay. um, and that we need to let other people talk. I'd love um, to. <laughs> <laughs> um, does anybody have a <coughs> Does anyone believe in ghosts? Jacqueline. That was fabulous. It's like you were performing your book, Leanne, so it was wonderful to listen to you both. But I was very struck by what you said about wanting to think about a time before photography. And I was very struck when you answered Adam by saying that what you thought images had done to us is make us smell more or less. I can't remember which it was, less. But don't you think also it's all made us see less in a way? And I was just thinking of Godard's statement, I can't remember which film it is, where he says, shut your eyes and see, mm -hmm. or Freud on the blindness of the seeing eye. So I feel there's something going on here about how the plethora of the image, it's all not just fraudulent, that's a cliche, but it's all ghosts, and that that's what you're tapping into in some way. Um, I, I hope I'm tapping into it. There is just... In, in a lot of thinkers and forms of art and scientists, I mean, Einstein had a, had a moment, and I'm gonna, if someone knows about Einstein more than I do, jump in, where he um, talks about a limit beyond which he couldn't explain. And it made him nervous, and it was uncanny, and he couldn't go there. And so there's, there is always this place that we know is there and don't know how to see or talk about or feel or exist in. And I, re I really don't want to be, oh, those are the good old days before there was, because I do think we're seeing and learning more. I do think, you know, that whole, that people say, oh, we're only using 10% of our brain. And I think now we're maybe using 12 because of photography, because of how we can read now. And you can send a picture of a latte and I'm in Brisbane, or I don't, like whatever. Like it does say something that we all understand without a caption. But we might be using 12% of our brain. But I wonder again, are we using our body, our corporal body, less too, and sort of the incorporality, if I'm pronouncing that right, of the photo and of the image, and then sort of how does it affect our sense of intuition, smell? taste, all of these things that without electricity, we're not going to disparage electricity, but you know, all of these things were different. And so, uh, like, it's not a new idea, but you know what I'm saying? I'm not answering your question. <laughs> this is what I do. <laughs> you say something or ask me a question and I just go off on it. Yeah, lose myself. No, it's interesting to think of just these places where it bumps up against, where it bumps up against edges. Do you think it's necessarily a bad thing if the world is getting more ghostly? Who doesn't want to be more spiritual? <laughs> faith. I mean, faith. It's a, a, I sort of I wonder if a different sense of faith will happen because we will either will sort of put put trust and faith in images and then start to distrust them once we're either let down or we develop a, another sense of faith. I mean, that's again what Warburg talks about, like in terms of, um, I mean, talking about sort of Catholic religion, but the Pieta, the first instance of the Pieta was um, this Vesper build, it was called, 
was in 13th century Germany, and um, they needed to do it to sort of teach Christianity and Catholicism to feel the pity and to feel the the grief. And so that's an Im that's an icon and an image, just sort of going, well, believe in this because look at this feeling and uh, like I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. I also think we're, I mean, climate change. <laughs> 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 you talked about repetition and about how images and the texts interact. And I just had this experience, and it relates to a watercolor, the one that I have just, because I, I create Thomas Bernhard from. Okay. And I've got a new edition where you have the watercolor on the cover, the concrete one. Yeah. And I kept coming back to the cover and seeing how you know the light would change colors and when it was natural light was one way or the other and in, in a way it, it was sort of a dialogue between the way that Thomas Bernhard will use same words and repeat in different places and you see the mm. whole construction and I thought that was something fascinating and not in any way you know demeaning or whatever so I think there's also sort of a positive way where they can interact in more abstract levels. Yeah, well, I think the more realize. you abstract something from the familiar, the more meaning it, it can have, both personal and metaphorical. That's interesting that you did that with the Bernard. I mean, he's, yeah, he's amazing. More of an observation. I was just thinking about when we all used to have dark rooms mm -hmm. and just that image of the you would take a photograph and then you would put it in the, the negative in the bath and, mm -hmm. the go and that was such a ghostly image mm -hmm. and how we've kind of lost that. Mm -hmm. The photograph began always as a ghost. And then I was thinking about, you were saying about the plethora of images. I was just talking to a friend about, for some of us who are slightly older, how National Geographic or something like that, you know, that we didn't have so many images there were many less images yeah. you know, 50 years ago than there are now. And that how, when you're talking about all these different kinds of images, how all of those are a bit ghostly. All these lives lived mm -hmm. where you only, instead of interacting with them personally, you know, in everyday life, you're seeing all these sort of ghost lives of your friends or yeah. people you've met just sort of flickering and whether or not you, you enter into those realities and yeah. how much you've sort of recreated that feeling that you've sort of manifested a feeling that I think we all have now, but in an object. So that's just a really interesting thing and there's beautiful thing that, to have done. Yeah, there's that time lapse. Well, there's the time lapse of a picture developing, and now there's a time lapse where you'll say, we did a selfie if we did this, and then we're, and then we're like, hey, look at it. And we're, <laughs> you know, we're sort of going, we're, we're editing ourselves by, go, oh, that one sucks, let's do it again. And then yeah. there's this some strange... So we're developing something again, but it's 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 weird. Like it's fast, and it, it's I don't know this idea of slowing stuff down either by abstraction or by or by trying to imagine or by not you know producing, not getting the satisfaction of a a latent image and leaving it. What's the opposite of late or leaving it latent? Leaving it latent. Lying, <laughs> leaving it latent. Yeah, I don't know. I wonder if. There's also a funny thing that's happening with photographs of children. Children know how to pose now. And again, this goes back to Warburg. They're, they, you know, do this, you know, or duck face or just these, these, these sort of c conventions of posing that we're all 
that we're all doing is um, when you produce a uh, produce a version of yourself. I feel like that's a ghost. That's mm -hmm. a ghost. But is curation. that new? I mean, like in a way, like I guess the convention we grew up with was the smile. Yeah, cheese. And like in a sense, that's no less artificial. Yeah, I mean, I have Taryn Simon. She doesn't smile for photographs. <laughs> kind of amazing <laughs> a you look pretty good when you don't smile like it's not as though like it's you, there's just this sense of gravitas that's there when you don't smile and so many people didn't smile for so long because they're like you have to hold your head still for 30 seconds so that's why all of those matthew brady daguerreotypes yeah. you know those dudes are not smiling yeah that is a that is a it's a lie everyone's you know depressed and <laughs> their marriages are falling apart and everyone's like jeez <laughs> like, like, yeah I was really, I'm really interested in the kind of active or kind of creative mode of reading that you cultivate in your work. Um, the way that you kind of ask someone to maybe construct a narrative out of the pictures, the caption, this kind of thing, and whether that mode of kind of active reading or looking for like what's latent is like whether you would, you can direct that, whether that is like a, a paranoid mode of reading or whether it's like an optimistic mode of reading, like whether you're, whether that is like a you're looking for like conspiracy or whether you're looking oh. for like treasure you know yeah um or maybe you would like disagree with kind of like putting it within that binary but i just was interested to hear more of that um, more about the way you would describe that i don't think it's a conspiracy but i think it's like a like a license like a driver's like a it's a language or a license it's something that we learn we learn how to do and i do think again it's optimistic but we should, as Warburg suggests, look at where the pictures are coming from. Is it propaganda? Is it selling you something? Is it, is it political? Is it creepy? Um, you know, what, what exactly do we see when, what are we being told when we see a grapefruit or a latte? There's like, why this image, why is it produced? I mean, I, I often say this, like if, when I post on Instagram, it's because I'm, depressed and lonely like we're all in these moments like who you don't do it when you're happy like and yet you post these pictures of like look how awesome and it's so there's you know there it's optimistic in some ways and also sort of uh really a mirror really a, a a sort of when you go deep into deep into why these pictures are produced um there is a story there there is some some reason it's not always what we see so Sort of actually related to that last question, but um, I guess when I first had a look at the book and the title, I was thinking a bit about um, like in Greek tragedy where like guests and hosts are such a kind of formative part of many of those plays mm -hmm. and the trust and the contract that's there. Yeah. And actually I was thinking also when you're talking about Alcestis who, you know, his wife is dead but he still has to play the role of host and welcome people into his house and then when they find out that's happened they bring the wife back as a ghost into the house and it's all I feel like you know you talked about as well how guest host enemy all those words are really closely connected in Greek and that idea of a contract you were saying we're not ourselves but that idea of that strong contract between hosts and guests when you call your book guest book what kind of a contract are you hoping to have I guess with reader writer or like living and dead do you see there's like a i don't know do you think there's a trusting or a suspicious type of relationship huh. i mean a guest book is something you sign i'm trying to think this through out loud i mean a guest book is something you sign so as a writer am i inviting the 
reader of the book to kind of put themselves in it. I think maybe that's what I'm trying to do. Also, by leaving these gaps of interpretation and gaps of memory, I'm, I'm sort of saying, if I don't show you the, per, the literal illustration of what this caption is, or don't caption what you're seeing, um, I'm inviting you to do some of the writing, um, essentially, and, um, and fill in, especially with the stories, the dream stories, um, where the captions are very, very, very minimal. I think it's an invitation um, more than anything, and, I, and that's what I do with, with my other books, too. It's sort of, I'm, I'm, asking, um, I'm asking you all to uh, make the connective tissue yourself, because, again, that is what I know we all know how to do because of how we read layout and design. And so I think, I think that's, I've never thought of it before, so thank you, but maybe that's what I'm doing. Yeah, it's a good question. But we were talking about um, ghosts and stories too, and just how they were so matter of fact. I mean, maybe there's, they still are, and I'm not reading enough, well, I am reading enough contemporary fiction. Dickens had incredible ghost stories, Christmas Carol being the most famous one. Joy, you know, The Dead, I consider a ghost story. Hamlet is just like they're just every like they're walking around everywhere in in our stories. We were talking about Helen of Troy and your theory about how Helen might have been an apparition or an Adelon. Um, I mean, I can't speak to that so much, but um, I feel like our trust in them is again already latent, and um, it was it's just been fun to to read so many and try to address it. Sorry, questions. <laughs> I was just thinking that we had a conversation not long ago in which you said in passing, well, there are no spirit photographs in this book because, you know, all yeah. photographs are spirit photographs. Like, obviously. And, <laughs> right? And I thought, that, we, well, yeah, of course, that's true. But, you know, you were talking about the, the ectoplasm yeah, and the, the medium the photographs. And, yeah, all of those, you, you know, is what you meant by this. And, yeah. and the fairy photograph, all of those, that tradition of spirit photography. Yeah. But you're also sort of replacing spirit photography with all photography. But you know I, that, loved, I mean, maybe you could I speak about that. I love the optimism again of spirit photography because the spiritualists were the first people to embrace photography as this. Well, of course, this is how we can communicate with the dead. We miss our departed. This is how this technology will allow us to see. I mean, it all comes from yearning and missing and and the and love. I think and so. Um, you know, there's that saying, all ghost story, all love stories are ghost stories or something like that. Didn't somebody say that? Was it Wallace <laughs> or every love story is a ghost story? Something like that. I do think, I mean, spirit, the spiritualist photography is so funny to look at now, but I, I do think it was the beginning of the, the potential of, and it did bring... Um, it did bring the technology along. It was the spiritualists and their enthusiasm for the form. It wasn't architects. It wasn't sort of. It was the spiritualists that brought the technology along out of this, you know, out of death and loss. And I mean, this book, um, this book is about death and loss, and it's about you know, di divorce to some degree, and sort of how to live with the dead, like the dead relationship. And yeah. so there's there's a lot of. Um, yeah, there's, I, I do think photography and grief also go hand in hand in a way um, that we're not looking at really clearly anymore. Um, not, again, I don't mean to be all down in like good old days or anything. 
exciting. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.